You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. X-Men. Hey everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom, your weekly X-Men podcast where we rank every story from A to Z. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Adam. Zach has the week off, uh, and I am thrilled to be joined by a guest co-host, our good friend, colleague, poet, and now Harvard professor of the new Taylor Swift course, the one, the only, Stephanie Burt. Steph, welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show. I am so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a real up and down day. I, a student dropped my course. Oh, no. You got to stop looking at those numbers. You really do. It sounds like the, the class is off to a, a rousing success. It, it, it's really fun. It's We had our first <laughs> meeting today. It's so much fun. And it's a it's a comparative lit class, right? For, for English eras class. of Taylor class. Swift. Well, you're looking at eras and we're looking at Alexander Pope and Willa Cather. And, um, you know, I was looking, I was trying to figure out what the comics content for this class could be. Mm. And there's no Dazzler comic that's exactly right. Yeah. And what I wanted, honestly, what I wanted to teach, uh, and I wish it were an X comic, but it's not is the first volume of the Jim and the Hologram series by oh, yeah. Frank Billy Thompson and Sophie Campbell. Yeah. But it is out of print because IDW is what it really? was. Yeah, you can't order it. Is it a licensing issue? I wonder. That's strange. Huh. Uh, it's an IDW lets things go out of print issue. Oh, okay. All right. It may also be a licensing issue, but it, it, it's it's that as well. Well, that's a shame. I remember that if being very a, If you're well, a Swifty, if you're a Swifty, <laughs> And you're a fan of Battle of the Atom and you are not familiar with Gem and the Holograms, the comic book by Kelly Thompson and Sophie Campbell. It is going to be your jam. It is my jam. It is going to be your gem, you know? Uh, (laughs) Well, Steph, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Um, Thank you so much for for coming back. And uh, you specifically are coming back so that we can talk this week about the uh, entry character, I think, for a lot of X-Men fans, and that is Kitty Pride. Um, I think the last time you were on the show, we talked about Girls' School from Heck. Um, we and did. a couple other sh- things. So um, for, for listeners who may not have listened to that particular episode, what is it about Kitty Pride that you just absolutely love and connect with? She is always trying to relate to her peers to like have friends. And at the same time, she knows that she's, that something separates her from them. Mm. And she spent a lot of her teen years being told with some reason that she's special by adults, Mm -hmm. that she has these gifts and she needs to use them to benefit the world. And she's someone who is able to, not just literally pass through solid objects, mm-hmm. but who's able to pass. She's a human passing mutant. Oh, right. And she's Jewish, but you can't tell by looking. She's a mutant and you can't tell by looking. She 
likes to kiss girls as well as guys. Uh, <laughs> she has now canonically kissed a girl, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't tell by looking unless she happens to be, you know, holding hands with a girl. So her stories are very much about wanting to fit in and trying to fit in and trying to be normal. And at the same time, knowing that you're not and wanting to stand out. And we're going to get a lot of different perspectives on that uh, in this particular episode, because we've got a couple different stories, but we're going to start with the story that uh, you selected because Steph is not only our buddy, our pal, our colleague, but Steph is also a patron. Um, If you (laughs) would like to be like Stephanie, well, you really can't. Um, there is wow. no one like Stephanie. But if you would like to be a, patri- a patron of Battle of the Atom, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash Battle of the Atom. As Zach says, you need to reach deep down into your hearts and your pocketbooks and throw a couple coffers our way. Um, a measly five bucks gets you your own pick uh, that we will build a show around for you. Honestly, right now, the line is not crazy long, so you could probably get in. Um, So if you're already a patron and you haven't made a request in a while, just uh, hit us up. So, Steph, why don't you tell us what is the story we are going to start with uh, on this particular episode? I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't know I was going to ask. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is the story that I really wanted us to look at that is just an example of how to write a comic is Uncanny X-Men Volume 1, number 168. Yep. Uh, Also known as Professor Xavier is a Jerk. (laughs) Uh, First published in... What is the cover date on that? Uh, Do we have a year? It is... uh, Cover date is April of 1983. So we've got... Okay. Yeah, we've got Claremont writing. This is part of uh, the Paul Smith arc. Bob Wyatt on inks, Glennis Wine on colors, and those Tommy Orr's letters. Tommy Orr's letters. So I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Because I have a feeling about anticlimaxes. Oh, okay. You can say no. You can say no. Yeah, go ahead. I have the feeling that sometimes, just sometimes on the show, mm-hmm. it's a good idea to save the best for last instead of covering oh, okay. monuments, a peak of all of x comics mm-hmm. and then looking at one story that's about 12 pages long okay one story that could have been about two pages long <laughs> so I'm wondering you're whether, giving away your takes i'm wondering whether what we want to do is to look at classic x-men number 35 okay and then look at marvel team up 135 Mm-hmm. And then look at Uncanny 168. Is that okay with you, Adam? That is, we do that? That'd be totally fine with me. We could we could s- switch it up. So as as Steph just mentioned, uh, the request for the show from Steph is Uncanny X Men 168. Um, but why don't we go in reverse order, and we will start with a short that comes at the end of Classic X Men number 35. Um, we so, should say if you're if if you're listening and you want to hear us take apart something amazing, and you really want like a recommendation, if you're listening and you want a shining star, please stay tuned. Stay with us. <laughs> stay with. I us. like this. I like this. It's like the news, you know. So we're gonna start with this backup story. Um, if you are familiar with Classic X Men, you know that it's reprinting 
uh, classic uncanny stories. And at this point in classic X-Men reprints, they are going through the dark Phoenix saga. Um, and the backup story to this is by writer Daryl Edelman. Um, still drawn by, you know, most of the backup stories are drawn by John Bolton, who's also inking himself here. And this is a very interesting short about Kitty phasing through the wall after escaping from Emma Frost and having kind of a trippy vision. So why don't we start by just kind of like breaking this down a little bit? What, what's happening here, Steph? So the entire story takes place between two panels mm-hmm. of the original Uncanny 129 in which Kitty has uh, been thrown at and then passed through a wall by the Hellfire Club goons and then realizes as she sort of comes to herself and becomes fully conscious again in a, a, a next to a, an urban trash can, a trash heap outside <laughs> a brick wall somewhere in New York City that she has the mutant power to phase through walls. She belongs with the X-Men. Emma Frost is bad. Charles Xavier is probably more good than bad, and she needs to go rescue her new friends. And what happens in Uncanny 129, which is the the first issue of the whole Dark Phoenix saga, Mm -hmm. is that she then phases into the Hellfire Club hovercraft and sneaks aboard and is going to go on to rescue some other X-Men who are being held captive. But this, I, this is one of my favorite kinds of things for these classic X-Men backups to do. It just zeroes in on what happens in between those two panels. And it shows us, the whole story shows us Kitty having a kind of psychedelic dream vision of the choice that she's about to make. And it is a a foreshadowing. It is a three-way choice. It is very faithful to the original uh, John Byrne and Terry Austin art. We get Kitty in her striped uh, sort of tube top with Mm -hmm. her Jewish star necklace in those amazing kind of flared white jeans that she wears. And we also get Kitty hallucinating that she's in a library in a dance outfit because what she wanted to do before she realized that she was a mutant and maybe she'd use her powers and go to a mutant power place was go to dance class and be Jewish and try to have friends in middle school and do a lot of physics and read books. And so she's in this library where she has a three-way choice. She can stay in the library. She can respond to this kind of big-eyed, bug-eyed, white ET-like creature in a wheelchair. Or she can go with this kind of dancing demonic Emma Frost and Emma Frost's dancing demonic uh, <laughs> showgirls chorus line yellow and and green demon headed chorus line and as happens in you know in continuity real life Emma is trying to get Kitty to go with her instead of to go with Charles and fights Charles and tries to seduce Kitty and that's what happens the story is called paper not paper because Kitty in the dream is in a library where Charles visits and Charles doesn't destroy the library, but Emma and Emma's dancing demonic showgirls 
melt the paper down and melt down a book called Structure and Function of the X Factor by Professor Charles Xavier and melt it into a kind of pulp. And Emma Mm -hmm. says, not even paper anymore, just broken bindings. And Kitty hallucinates Storm and Chuck and Chuck's wheelchair taking her home and she has to pilot a wheelchair with an injured storm in it because storm in real life has been incapacitated and she has to drive storm in the wheelchair through all of this pink melted pulp that is no longer paper past emma into this beautifully brightly rendered facsimile of kitty's home with all these library-like bookshelves. And after she's done that and hallucinated rescuing Storm in Chuck's wheelchair in the dream, and she says physics, Mm -hmm. home, books, and it's such a good example of how to do layout and give the illusion of motion on a comics page in one panel. John Bolton is really at the top of his game. It's so good. And she says, I'm passing through walls, walls of bricks and books. And we get that filmic trick of seeing her from above and then seeing her face in close up and then seeing her from behind again, from far above. And she realizes and she says, finally, with no background at all, just against black, this is my power, my mutant power to pass through solid objects. Now I know. And on the very last page of the holding dang thing, we see her back in the realistically rendered New York streetscape of Uncanny 129. And she says that she's going to be passing through obstacles, passing through the new with the X-Men in the service of another. And she passes into that hovercraft and goes back into the story as we know it, if we know the Dark Phoenix saga. It's this tiny thing. It's like a lot of other backups. It's not something you had to read but it's a wonderfully rendered moment in Kitty's coming to consciousness of her ability to be a hero with other heroes, even though it's all new and she's still sort of almost 14, not even 14. It's so well done and it really feels Claremontian. And I ended this story, rereading the story, wishing that Daryl Edelman had written more things, and it turns out that what he's mostly did during his 80s time at Marvel was to edit things. He's mostly a comic book editor, Mm -hmm. and this is one of his only notable writing credits. It may be his only X credit. Yeah, I mean, the only, I mean, he, I guess, wrote a couple of pages of Marvel Comics Presents 79 and an issue of Thundercats for Star Comics uh, label. But um, it's it's fascinating, I think, for all the reasons you just stated. But I, I'm very taken by the symbolism uh, of the story. You know, yeah. you've, you've already kind of uh, talked about the, the books and the library, but just the, the way that John Bolton draws the the amalgamation of Xavier and Storm as this wheelchair bound yet somewhat feminine robot. Yes, you know, sort of familiarity is really interesting. Um, I'm also really curious if like Morrison read this and picked up some of the diamond motifs that are in here, because 
Emma is drawn in such an angular way. Like it's all sharp cutting angles. Um, she almost seems to be melting in like icicles at a certain point. And, you know, there's these, there's this sort of diamond motif in the background of, of one of the panels. Uh, she just seems icy, even at the same time that she's kind of like melting. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. And, What's cool about this is, like you said, it forecasts what Kitty's struggle is going to be over the course of, you know, the the next however many issues of X-Men is this her whole this life, whole, her, her whole life, right? honestly, at least up to the point where she becomes the Red Queen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I am really taken by this. I do realize that it's a short, but I, I often have really strong feelings about these, these classic X-Men backups and this one's no exception. It's really good. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I was, I mean, I, I had read this, I had read this before, but I had forgotten just how perfect it gets where her character is at the very beginning. Mm hmm. And no one knew, I mean, this is something else to, to sort of note. I've been doing some, some research for another project about what Kitty looks like when she's first created. And as some of you know, she is named by John Byrne, who promised one of his friends or ex-friends, or I don't even know, in art school, that if he ever got to create a comics character, he'd name the character after her. Uh, that is, I believe she's a well-known Canadian sculptor at this point who goes by KT Pride or something, so mm -hmm. that people don't don't automatically think she's an X-Man. But Byrne did not want Kitty to be a physics genius. Byrne did not want her to be exceptional. Byrne wanted her to be this kind of every girl and was not happy when he saw the dialogue mm. that Claremont had put in and that Orzakowski had lettered in which Kitty explains that she's this great math genius who is distanced from her peers by her academic talent and her kind of general nerdiness. Yeah. And, and this really fills in her sense of her academic talent and her distance from her peers and her attachment to books and libraries, even before her adventure starts. Yeah. And I love her for that too. No, me too. Me too. It it really is just a great example of what classic X-Men backups were good at, you know, of like filling in these little gaps and giving you some more character motivation, even beyond what you already, because you already know these characters, you've already read this story in a lot. Well, but in a lot of cases, people were coming at, I know one of my very first uh, issues of X-Men ever was an issue of classic X-Men. And Aww. that's because these weren't necessarily in print. So yeah. this was an opportunity to get new readers to read some of the classics at the same time that all of their, you know, favorite late eighties, early nineties comics were coming in. So it's pretty smart uh, from a marketing perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't ranked that many classic X-Men backup stories, but I do think that uh, this one is worthy of its own spot on our list. So, um, as you know, Steph, we do have a big old list that we are ranking every X-Men story from A to Z on. Um, we are currently up to 864 stories, which is absolutely insane. Uh, at number one, we have the House of X and the Powers of Ten. At 200, we have Cable, Blood, and Metal. At 400, we have uh, Colossus's God Country. 600, the Muir Island Saga. 
At 800, we have Uncanny X-Men 500 to 503 SXF. And at 864, we have the worst X-Men comic of all time, 2099 World of Tomorrow. Now, before we came on air, you did ask uh, how you know, we generally hit the list. And what we've been doing lately is kind of looking at the hundred marks and seeing, you know, where mm-hmm. do we think this fits in. So as you're looking at this list, like which level, which echelon do you think this might fit in best? I think this is really good. It okay. Small enough that it's not top 100. And I'm, I'm looking at the hundred marks Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing that you've got X-Men gold number 30 way down around 300. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was not uh, here. I was not on the show uh, when you ranked that. I was not there for that episode. I have feelings there. Um, so I feel like this is worse than X-Men gold 30, but I also feel like X-Men gold 30 is ranked way too low. So uh, I'm at war with myself, kind of like Kitty's unconscious in this short, wonderful dreamlike story. Start around there. Yeah, I think I think I would go a little bit higher, honestly. Oh, I would, too. I just think X-Men Gold number 30 is the best issue by far from that run. And you it is still a Guggenheim issue of X-Men Gold. So that that's probably why that's there. But I think this is probably it's not it's not like the other Guggenheims. Yeah, it's definitely a step above, which is why it's where it is on the list. Um, I think we're probably in the 200s here now. Yeah, uh, let's see. What else could we possibly compare this to? Do you think this is better or worse than the first annual of New Mutants, uh, Steal the Planet? That's at 238. Um, I love Steal This Planet. Okay. I think think it's worse than Steal This Planet, but not by much. Okay. Is it... uh, It is. It's worse than the Burning Man issue of X-Force, but we're in the right territory. Okay. All right. It and I is think it's way better than Nightcrawler's Inferno. Okay. And that is at 243. That is the fourth X-Men annual. So we're, we're right in here. Um, I'm going to say, I think we should probably squeeze it in between power pack 19, which is the guest packed issue Thanksgiving issue of power pack um, at 242 and Nightcrawler's Inferno at 243, which has Claremont kind of playing with similar mythological, and fantastical imagery. What do you think about that? That would make this our new 243. I'm okay with that. So at 243, we are slotting in classic X-Men number 35, paper, not paper. And uh, I know that you and I both liked that story quite a bit. Um, You were vociferous that this next story, uh, at least off air, that was not something that you enjoyed, but I do think it was a good choice for this episode because it, it oh, was yeah. around the same uh, time period as the uh, Uncanny 168, which we will get to. So this next story is Marvel Team Up, Volume One, Number One Hundred and Thirty Five. Mm-hmm. This is written by Bill Mantlo, drawn by Ron Friends and Mike Esposito, colors by George Russos, and letters by Joe Rosen. Um, did I get this correct? You said you're a big Bill Mantlo fan. Uh, no, not exactly. Bill Mantlo wrote a lot of comics. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wrote <laughs> so many comics. Uh, I like some of the comics that he wrote. I believe he co-created Moon Knight. Is that right? That sounds right, but I don't know. Sure. Okay, we don't want to disseminate misinformation to our listeners. So we're gonna look that up. I'm not a Moon Knight guy, so I'm not sure. No, but he, you know what? 
Um, he did some work on on Moon Knight. Uh, yeah, he he and 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 Doug Mensch together. Yeah, he he was part of the team for sure that co-created Moon Knight. Uh, he, more importantly, to the development of like little preteen Stephanie going to the Cabin John Mini Mall and buying all the comic books. Bill Mantlo co-created the Micronauts. Right. Yeah. Very hard to follow now because Marvel no longer has the license. I believe mm-hmm. that has not been reprinted, but yeah. that was a pretty interesting try to capitalize on the sales of star Wars figures, license, a toy line comic. And it was one of the more successful long lived license, a toy line comics listeners to this podcast may be familiar with the X-Men Micronauts crossover, mm-hmm. which I believe we have ranked. It's a little troubling. It is on the list, but that is one that has some not great stuff in it. Um. <laughs> you know, it, it it has. It's one of the ones that has uh, Professor Xavier being a, a real Ooh. above yes. and beyond jerk. It's yeah. it's not it's not no, great. It's not. Great. Uh, it's got a lot. There's a lot happening there. Yeah. Uh, but but so Bill Mantlo also I believe co-created Cloak and Dagger. He did yes. a lot. He is, mm-hmm. I believe continues to be uh, alive and quite incapacitated. He was in a very serious bike accident a long, a while ago mm-hmm. and he quit comics to become a public defender. He went to law school. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I believe that's what happened. I wow. believe he went to become a lawyer and uh, tried to help some people stay out of the, uh, you know, carceral state industrial complex. Oh, wow, that's great. I didn't yeah. know. Idea. Now, okay. now he's, he's, he's quite ill, but he did write this. Uh, he did write a lot of Marvel team ups. I suspect that he was known for being able to turn things around fast because frankly, this seems like it was written in 10 minutes. Well, I want to get into this a little bit because, um, this is a Spider-Man team up book. And in this particular case, right on the cover, Spider-Man and an unlikely ally, Kitty pride gets, gets top billing here. Um, what is the cover date on this? Uh, this is November of, hold on a sec, 1983. So we're right about the same. Uh, we're not that far off. We're only a couple months off of Uncanny 168. Um, and this does make a reference inside at an editor's note um, to Uncanny 170. So we know that this. All right. So before I say this next part. The tagline on the on the cover is not just Marvel team up Spider-Man and Kitty Pride, but it says in the lair of the Morlocks. So we know this is going to be a Morlock story. And the editor's note inside does indicate that this does take place after Uncanny 170 when Storm has taken leadership from Callisto of the Morlocks. Um, yes. So the plot here, relatively simple. There are thugs that are, for some reason not really spelled out very well, um, taking hostages on a subway car. Spider-Man does manage to stop the train from crashing into another in such a way that it would kill everybody, but he is knocked out in the process and drawn down into uh, the Morlock tunnels by a group of Morlocks. Kitty Pride, on the other hand, and I want to get your take on this, Steph, is mm-hmm. babysitting two random kids um, yeah. And the excuse, Ed, Eddie, Eddie, and what is the other kid's name? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, Jeff, Eddie and Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. 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 Um, And we're not really clear how we found these kids or where they came from, but apparently this is almost like a homework assignment because Professor X wants 
Kitty Pride to do normal teen stuff. Now that didn't ring true to me. What was your reaction to that? So I think that's a great premise. Somewhere on, you know, somewhere out there, as the great singer Grace Petrie says, in some fairy universe, there is a very good story about Kitty babysitting in Westchester. This is not it, but I love the premise. Kitty goes back and forth. She's really defined in this era by one day she wants to be, you know, not like all the other girls and be with the X-Men and do adult superhero things. And then the next day, she really, really wants to go to dance class and like go to Salem Center and maybe mm. even go to the mall mm -hmm. with Ilyana or Doug. And she's dealing with the fact that Doug would like to kiss her and she doesn't really <laughs> want to kiss him back. And it's very, it's relatable. Yeah. Um, so, so Professor X saying, okay, if you want to be a you know, normal American, whatever, ninth or 10th grader, uh, doing normal American and, you know, gender appropriate activities. I will find you some babysitting in Westchester. <laughs> Go watch some grade schoolers. I love that. But think she's such a bad babysitter. She's a terrible babysitter. Uh, we have these two kids that are playing some version of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's and a board game. It's sewers, I don't think Bill Mantlo knew what Dungeons and Dragons was. Sewers and Serpents. Sewers and Serpents. Yeah. But it's uh, a board game. It's supposed to reference Dungeons and Dragons, but it, it is a, a board game with competition between players and stats. And it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it, but it's, it's causing mean, it's, these, yeah, it's causing these two boys to just like really butt heads and argue to the point where Kitty really uncharacteristically is just like screaming shut up at them and sends them to yeah. bed. She um, physically drags them up the stairs and sends them to bed <laughs> early and is an absolute. <laughs> I wouldn't hire a babysitter like that. And no. I don't think it's Kitty. This is, a, she's really out of character. It doesn't, it feels like maybe Bill read Professor Xavier as a jerk and thought that was all that Kitty Pride was and like went with it. I don't know. Yeah, like I, I can't imagine that anyone who read any Claremont issue uh, with Kitty in it would, would carefully would do this. Kitty, the Kitty of Professor Xavier is a jerk. She would not, she's just, She's just smarter than this. Yeah. And if you want to show her being a terrible babysitter, which I support because she's an only child. It's not clear that her parents wanted her to babysit or that she did that. If you want to show Kitty, I'm sorry, I have really strong feelings about this. Good. If you want to show her being terrible with these two uh, very aggressive you know, grade school boys. You show her getting flustered, mm -hmm. maybe accidentally letting one of them realize she has powers, not being able to work the microwave, burning their grilled cheese. There's so many ways to show her being bad at babysitting without showing her being mean to grade school. <laughs> yeah. That's not okay. No, like borderline abusive, right? And so I also feel like Bill Mantlo probably caught a screening of Poltergeist uh, or maybe no. like the gate, because what happens next is that the two boys go out back to explore like this ditch in the ground, um, which I mean, it, it's it's very much a Poltergeist thing. And I was that in the 80s and I can confirm that there were ditches in the ground everywhere in suburbia. You just <laughs> couldn't go out to your backyard without finding an enormous, mysterious ditch. <laughs> Everything's like that movie, The Gate, you know, or, or there's just a hole in the ground. Um, so they and, and short story. 
they all end up down this hole in the in the ground and end up in Morlock land. And this is also where things start to go off the rails. So what did you think of when they get down there? We're introduced to something called a magna car where it's explained that the Morlocks, we always wondered how they got around. Apparently they have their own high speed monorail system down there. What? Okay. On the one hand, and there's a, a panel. I clipped this panel from this comic. It is absolutely my favorite, uh, my favorite panel. And I really want to get you, I want to get you the, the, the quote. Uh, I want to read it to you. I don't think I can screen share, but I want to get you the quote. I've, I've got it in front of me. So if you've got it okay. there, I'll, I'll, I'll see it. Okay. It's the one where Kitty says, hey, what is this Amtrak underground? <laughs> yeah. And I love the idea that there is an Amtrak underground dedicated to improving American passenger rail service. Make that happen. I want <laughs> that to be the case on Earth 616. I am okay with the Morlocks having someone who's got sort of forge like tech powers mm. who built them a way of getting around secretly in these otherwise unused subway tunnels without getting electrocuted or drowned in raw sewage. Sure. I'm okay with that. What I am not okay with is the idea that for some reason, these tunnels extend at the very least into Riverdale and apparently into Westchester because the Morlocks as we know from Uncanny 170, live under Manhattan. Right. They live in the subway tunnels. Subway tunnels of New York City do not go to Salem Center, which is in <laughs> northern Westchester. Yeah. It makes no sense that these kids fall down a hole and wind up in the New York City subway tunnels where the Morlocks live, nor does it make any sense that the Morlocks who for some reason are cannibals led by a human with a mohawk named Strigor. Okay, we got to get into this because this okay. was the other thing that I was like, Bill, have you been reading the comics? Because No, he's clear- too busy with the Micronauts, which he we- was good at. He was good <laughs> at writing Micronauts. If you're, we- Bill Mant- if you're like friends and family of Bill Mantlo out there, Bill Mantlo was very good at writing Micronauts comics. Which maybe not anything else, you know? I, I mean, well, I've read some this. Cloak and Dagger. I enjoyed that, but... This seems to suppose that the Morlocks would follow a human leader and who claims that he was there before the Morlock. Who wants them to eat people. Yes. They're putting people into dungeons and eating them. They're cannibalizing them. What is going on here? Whom they kidnap using non-existent high-speed rail tunnels that extend all the way to Westchester. I have ridden a lot of Metro North trains. (laughs) And I can tell you Metro North is above ground by the time you get anywhere near where Salem Center is supposed to be. Of course it is. This is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I'm glad you and I are in agreement that that is just like a bridge too far. It's it's just too much, you know? Yeah. Now, there is one thing that's good near the end, which is that okay. Eddie and Jeff uh, have this thing where I believe it's Jeff who is always daring Eddie to do stupid things. Mm-hmm. And then it develops that when they are in danger... Uh, Jeff, the one who wants everyone to take risks, is the one who does not show courage. And Eddie, who is the one who wants right. to play it safe, is willing <laughs> to rescue his brother. That is is kind of good. And Kitty notices that. And there are story beats that have kind of saved the cat screenwriting emotional raw power in here. But this is neither the Kitty Pride whom I know and love, nor 
anything like the New York metro area that so many of us <laughs> no. <laughs> learned about from Marvel Comics. Yeah, it also just ends, you know, like, so the kids do help Spidey escape from the dungeon, I guess, where they were going to eat Spider-Man. Um, there's big fight scenes. Stiger gets uh, Stiger. Is it Stiger? Stiger? Anyway, Stiger. he gets knocked out. We'll never see this guy again. And they, you know, make it back out. And where are they? They're like somewhere in New York City. And the, the story just ends. You know, we never find out if these kids get home. We never find out, like, if Kitty Pride had to, like, answer some difficult questions with a parent or what the X-Men's reaction to it was. It's just over. And we'll never hear it from this again. So, so that, kind that of- is easy. That is easy to know, Prize. I will tell you what happens after the end of the story, and I'm not upset about that. And this is what happens. Kitty, with some prompting from Spidey, <laughs> who realizes that she's a teen who doesn't want to get in trouble. Kitty calls the X-Mansion, and someone who can fly, probably Storm, picks up. Storm flies them all home, and... Chuck shows up and erases everyone. <laughs> there <memory>. you go. <laughs> That's always the easiest answer, right? I mean, he canonically does it so often in this so era. Casually, and, so like, casually, right? Oh my god. Uh, yeah, and it, I mean, at this point, you normally you don't want that, but if I had behaved this out of character, frankly, I'd want Chuck to erase my memory too. Well, like it just we, doesn't. We unfortunately can't erase this issue from our minds, but I think we both agree that it's not up to the standard of what else we're talking about this week. So let's take a look at the list. Um, We have, hold on, let's see. I know we have other Marvel team up on this list. And so we have Marvel team up 150, where they team up with the X-Men all the way up at 132. Definitely Mm -hmm. don't think this is as good as that. Um, Down at 333, we have Marvel Mm -hmm. team up 149, where Cannonball and Spider-Man team up. And I do remember there being something about a hat, buying a hat for Sam Guthrie's mom in that story. (laughs) I am, Adam, I'm looking at the hundreds markers. Yes. And I am looking at number 500 which is the beginning of Generation Hope, which introduces those characters. Yeah. This, this I think is... that's a good comic. I think this is a bad comic. Ergo, we clearly want to go under 500. And I think we may want to go under 700 for this one. Um, Let's see. 600 right now. We have the five lights. Yeah. I mean, this is just kind I of. really uh, hate that era. You really hate the five lights era? I mean, you do, obviously. I mean, it's but... Okay. It's it's all right. I mean, you got to remember that that's some like really weak Will Sportaccio stuff too. You know, yeah. Otherwise, it's, it's not it's not. I'll, I'll, I'll defend the writing. I'll defend the writing. I'm not yeah. defending the art. Oh sure. I'm. I, da, 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 da. I mean, got to go below New Mutants thirty six. Yeah, and that is at uh, where, where are we at for that one? That's six nineteen. Yeah, it's definitely. You guys yeah. really on some comics I like. Well, that's our job. Um, yeah, I, I agree. This is not as good as Dazzler 38, um, where she fights Colossus and, and Wolverine. That's at 618. Oh, we just keep moving down the list. Is this better? Well, I think it's worse than Uncanny X-Men Annual 8, which is the adventures of Lockheed and his pet girl, Kitty. Oh, absolutely. That's at least in character. That's Ilyana's fairy tale, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. The one that was written because they wanted to capture the lightning in a bottle. It was Kitty's fairy tale again. Yeah. That's not a great comic, but everyone behaves in character. Yes. Is this better or worse than the arc where Doug dies in new mutants? Oh, it's much worse. Again, that that's was very painful. And Louise Simonson got hate mail from parents about it. But honestly, Everyone in that arc behaves in character and Brett Blevins is consistently drawing people who are recognizable and it's just horrifying and sad. It rips your heart out, but it doesn't like hurt your brain. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a a, a fair point. I'm going to say that this is better than it's 679 X-Men the movie special, which was published by Wizards of the Coast. I think that's pretty bad. But this is probably on par with the Mojo Rising two-issue arc of Uncanny at 460 and 461. Um, I'm just taking a look. I think we're in, I think we are in a reasonable place. We are yeah. putting it around Die by the Sword, which is that bizarre one-shot that where Exiles turned into New Excalibur, which even I will not defend <laughs> that no, issue. It's, it's bad. So I'm, I'm, I think... I think maybe, maybe around, around there, maybe I haven't read the ghost rider. That's the 688, but yeah, um, I don't I, think we're, I don't think we're that low. Cause it's 682. We have Wolverine and bad rock, the uh, Rob Liefeld character. And I, I do think this is probably better than that. Okay. okay. So, okay. It's fun. It, it's short. Yeah. I would slot <laughs> this humor. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I would slot this in at 679. Um, putting it okay. under uncanny, the extremists 487 and 491. What do you think about that? Is that an okay spot? Yeah, that's good. All right, great. Okay. So we're going to move on to yes. the main event, yes. um, which is uncanny 168. So um, this was your request, Steph. I'm going to give you the floor. I do think we should kind of work through this scene by scene. Uh, Cause there's a lot of really good stuff in it, but Let's just start with why'd you pick it? Why is this the one you wanted? It is iconic. Mm-hmm. The splash page in which Kitty in her kind of winter's kind of ski jacket is, which also looks like a bisexual pride flag, is <laughs> it does. It does. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if bisexual pride prag flag pride flag was invented then, but it, it kind of looks like that. Is pointing at you, the viewer, and saying Professor Xavier is a jerk, and if Paul Smith had done nothing else in his life as an artist, <laughs> he'd be remembered as long as there are superhero comics for that one splash page. And fortunately, Paul Smith did a lot of other wonderful things, and he drew the rest of this issue. Uh, it is just a masterclass in how to do Claremontian storytelling and how to create a lot of different looks for people who all look like they belong in the same comic and who mm. all looked kind of good. And it just has a lot of different storylines happening at once. And only one of them comes to a conclusion. It is elegant. It is moving. And it is an absolute delight where the Kitty storyline ends or pauses with 
not the first appearance of Lockheed, but the establishment mm. of Lockheed, everyone's favorite purple dragon, as a continuing character who lives on Earth with Kitty in the mansion. Yeah. So when was the first time you encountered this issue? Because for me, I know about all of the Paul, most of the Paul Smith stuff, because the two big trade paperbacks that were available when I was 10 years old were from the ashes and the Asgardian mm-hmm. wars. Um, and I, I treasure them. I remember them fondly to me. The Paul Smith era represents the really the best that X-Men can be in a lot of ways. And this issue is one that we have not covered yet. Um, how did you first encounter this? I purchased it off a drugstore rack when it came out. Cause nice. I'm that old. <laughs> That's the answer. That's and of answer. course I didn't, you know, as a, 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 a preteen, I did not understand why it would stay with me. Whereas the other things I was reading, including Micronauts comics mm-hmm. wouldn't. But I certainly loved it then and I loved it now and I see myself in it for reasons that I will be unpacking until I die, probably, (laughs) because I haven't stopped yet. And it really that the Paul Smith era really is just all cylinders. It's imperial phase. It's got everything working. It has a creative team that knows these characters and knows how to do this kind of braided storytelling that gives you the sense that you are reading one massive intertwined, really novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, It feels like a Victorian novel. You've got all of these, these plots moving around and you've even got at the very end of it after the Kitty plot line has been handled uh, something that happens a lot in Victorian novels, which is you get somebody's mysterious doppelganger, because this is also the first appearance of Madeline Pryor. Yes. Well, th- there are a few really important things that happen in this issue. So yes. let's start we with what let's are. start with the first scene, which is that the classic Professor Xavier is a jerk. Um, and then I think what a lot of people forget is that the conversation she's having is with Ileana who then is basically telling Kitty she's acting like a, a child, which is an interesting thing for someone in Ileana's position who's been artificially aged up in a hell dimension to say, but she's basically telling Kitty like, hey, you didn't grow up in a hell dimension, so maybe like cool it, like you're annoying me, which is such a teenage thing to do, and I love it. Well, she's also sort of right. Oh, absolutely. Kitty says, some friend you are. <laughs> and Eliana says it's just some of their they both they look exactly right and their body language is exactly right. And you just see them. And that is I mean, I can't speak for your listenership, but that's the friend that I wanted. Mm. That's exactly the friend that I wanted. And a really good friend will tell you when you're being a jerk. <laughs> and Eliana says, I am your friend, dummy. That's how come I can talk to you like this. Yeah. You've been ranting nonstop ever since you were shifted from the X-Men to the trainee team, the New Mutants, which also tells readers new to the X-Men that the New Mutants are the trainee team mm-hmm. because every Marvel comic could be someone's first. And then... Ileana says, don't tell me what is or isn't fair. You didn't spend half your life in a demonic limbo. (laughs) Kitty apologizes. And what we realize 
is that Kitty and Ilyana belong together. They really, if you were starting from scratch in what the philosopher John Rawls calls the original position, of course they would be on the same team. They're the same age. They both need help relating to their peers for very different reasons. They need to have peer group experiences and they need to learn to control their powers before they're sent off on adventures. And the counter argument that readers are expected to agree with is that they're not in the original position. Kitty's already an X-Man. She's already done all these daring things that mean that she shouldn't be demoted. Right. And there's something to that. And what's fun being an X-Man. Yeah. And what's fun is that that argument extends immediately inside. So this is also an era when Wolverine um, is about to walk off panel into his mini series with Claremont and Frank Miller, which is really fun. You know, if you think about it, because we're not going to see him for a couple issues, but this is part of an era where like, that was what you had to do. Like if your character was going to go off to a mini series, yes. they had to make up an excuse to leave the book. Um, but him and, and Nightcrawler are having this argument about it as well. So I also want to just note, you mentioned it already, but the casual clothes that our characters are wearing, the jackets, yes. the turtlenecks, the, you know, Wolverine's, um, uh, you know, kind of almost safari look to him. It all or, or cowboy look that he has, right? Yeah, it just cowboy look. it it really just tells us so much about the characters based on what they're wearing and what their choices are. Yeah. Yeah. The costuming is so good. Nick Crawler's got that turtleneck. Almost all the characters spend the issue out of costume mm -hmm. in clothes, and the costuming tells us so much about who they are and it is perfect yeah. and it is is a really wonderful combination of paul smith drawing body language claremont getting the psychology exactly right and somehow still managing to be the ridiculous claremont that we all make allowances for because <laughs> storm of course gets to be <laughs> naked yes if you get a chance the two things you always know about storm in this era well, there's three things you always know about Storm. One is that if there's an argument, she's right, because she's always right. One is that if she can be naked, she will be naked. And one is that if there's a supervillain, he will fall in love with her. <laughs> well, the other trope that happens here is that um, Storm is starting to have some issues with connecting with the Earth. You know, yes. and, you know, this is always Claremont's thing with her is, you know, what is her evolution going to be as a character? And, you know, what what, what trail, trials and tribulations is she going to go through? And this is the first hint that is going to lead to Punk Storm. Um, yes. And to her taking it's over the Morlocks. Yeah, very soon. It's coming very soon. This is also the, the thing that, the one thing about Storm in this year that never makes sense and that doesn't really make sense in the Marvel team-up comic we just trashed is that normally when you put Storm in charge of something, she's good at it, but mm. she is the worst, most neglectful absentee mom for the Morlocks. <laughs> oh, yeah. She just, she just becomes in charge of them and she can't delegate. No, anyway, she's just like, you guys, you guys do your thing down there. I'm, I'm up here. Yeah, that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we see Storm having those troubles connecting with the Earth. We see Kitty, who is 
trying to be in her happy place, the place that she really wants to be, which is the dance studio. We get visual and psychological flashbacks to Uncanny X-Men 139. Mm -hmm. And the big one difference is that Ilyana is now Kitty's teenage best friend. And she wasn't, you know, what she wasn't there in 139, she hadn't been aged up yet. Mm -hmm. And she is able to bond with Stevie over this is really not something's wrong. And Ilyana realizes that sometimes you need a trusted adult and sometimes you need your best friend and those aren't the same times. And we finally get this amazing panel of Kitty looking at the reader and saying that she is going to try to convince Chuck to put her back on the X-Men. Yeah, I, I think the one page that really stands out to me, aside from the first, is, um, you know, I, I've, I've gone on at length about during Wolverine's wedding uh, arc, the mm. fight between Wolverine and Silver Samurai. But one of the things that Paul Smith excels at so much is the ability to really sell characters, body language and the acting yes. of those characters. And yes. this one panel of Kitty doing kind of a pirouette, you know, into another dance move and then yes. seeing and the physical. Wrong. Yeah. And getting it wrong. And the physical, like anger on her face and Stevie's face and, you know, throwing a hand up. These gestures are so human and he really just understands like how this works. So, you know, we get Kitty trying to convince professor X through a variety of different ways, you know, yes. she's going to outsmart him. She's going to be the lawyer. She's going to be helpful. She's going to flatter him. And the way that's illustrated is also like so spot on. It's great. Yeah. And the use of white space on that page, this is, I mean, Honestly, if I were teaching a kind of creative kind of art school, you know how to teach your art school classes. Uh, you know something <laughs> about so. teaching visual art. Uh, I've seen your art. It's great. And you know something about teaching. And I don't know how to teach those classes. But if I ever had to, I would show them this and say, this is how you tell these stories. Mm. It's how you tell interpersonal stories with no punches thrown. It's also how you tell action stories because there is... Uh, one one rule, if I remember correctly, of Marvel in this era is that every Marvel comic could be someone's first, right. which is a good rule. Mm -hmm. I wish they would still follow it. Uh, another rule, which I'm not sure I like as much, is that there has to be a fight somewhere in every issue. Well, yeah. And Simon and Smith are just like, fine, okay, you can have a fight. I'm going to make the fight make sense. And we get some wonderful, dynamic, acrobatic fighting in which Kitty's body is in a different place, in a different relationship to the space and the angle that Smith is using in every panel. Mm -hmm. um, and then Colossus shows up to save well, her. We should, we should note that, that the, the uh, presence that she notes uh, leads to this fight sequence is that there, there's a Sidri nest in, yes. in the basement, basically, right. uh, that she has to take care of and right. then realizes the Sidri, we should, the Sidri, the Sidri are crab shaped, black oh. and pink sea list alien invaders who you call when the brood aren't picking up the phone. Yeah. They're, they're kind of like four higher bounty hunters that look a little bit like crabs. Um, but Lockheed is here. 
like we're finally seeing him in action. We're seeing Colossus in action and the body language is just incredible. It's great. Um, yeah. Speaking and, of body. And I, love oh, how, go ahead. I love how Colossus shows up to save, to save her. Mm-hmm. And Kitty gets to show that she can really hold her own against a, a lot of Sidri and, and fight and take some of them out. And then Colossus takes more of them out. But the, the real hero who ends the fight is Lockheed mm-hmm. who shows up and takes the, four page fight in this comic exactly as seriously as we should be taking it because he has used his fire breath to incinerate the Sidri nest. And it's this panel after several pages of really intense fighting where it's clear that Lockheed has just, you know, charbroiled it and it's Lockheed with his tail up and his wings folded going, you want to say it, Adam? <laughs> what does it? he, what does he say? He says, yum. He says, no, he says burp. He burp. Didn't eat them. Yeah, yeah, because he, he's, he's, he's been he, hungry all issue. That's right. He did. I guess he ate the eggs. I guess yeah. you can't eat Sidri, but you can eat Sidri eggs. <laughs> the Sidri are probably a little too big, you know. Now, I mean, he's got claws. Yeah, I think, yeah, they're, yeah. They think he, they're just tough and nasty tasting, but the eggs are delicious. I imagine them having like an exoskeleton of some kind. Uh, oh, yeah. So now... You were mentioned. You, you talked about bodies before. I, I want to get into the sexy part of this issue because there are some sexy bodies in this issue as well. the The first is that we have Cyclops reuniting with uh, his one time friend and you know occasional buddy in the romance department, and that is Captain Alettis Forrester, Lee Forrester. That's right, Lee Forrester. Who, good God, these people look sexy, right? Like. Cyclops is in his uh, black tee with his muscles bulging and rolled up white pants. Uh, Lee is walking around in in a in a tied up blouse and and very short jean shorts. Like they just look hot, and it's like okay, well, I you know you get this is something Claremont's very good at in this era is like teasing that there's going to be a romance and then throwing a huge obstacle in the way, just like every good romance novelist should, right? So there's, there's, they've got three reactions. One is this is a really beautiful straight people romance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, straight people who are adults who are figuring out what they want because it's hard to know and figuring out that they're probably not going to be each other's end game. Uh, but there's a lot of chemistry between them and they like each other very much. And, you know, they have each other for now. And it's, beautiful. yeah. And I love the writing. It's very I clear s- that they're not, you know, in super commitment mode, they're just, we like each other's company mode, you know? And we're going to keep getting it on off the page because these are comics sold in (laughs) drugstores. Right. Right. It's it's hot. It's also, there was some, there's something missing and I don't know whether I'm criticizing Claremont and Smith or criticizing the entire culture that produced them. And I think it's the latter. Mm -hmm. But when I see two very conventionally movie star attractive people flirting and holding hands, I think that's hot. Mm -hmm. When I see six very fit people who look like they work out, coupling up or hanging out in groups of three and just, you know, maybe they're holding hands or maybe they're just exercising. I think those people might also be hot. When I see a comic book that's got 20 people, only some of them have superpowers. Only some of their superpowers are basically physical. And every single one of them looks like they work out a lot. And none of them 
has any body type that would disqualify them from being cast as a Hollywood lead. There is something suspect and sad about the world that this comic that is supposedly about inclusion is is giving us. Mm. And that is the one dimension in which the comics from this era, which are so good and so thoughtful and which I love so much, are sort of no better than they should be and no better than their time. And mm. really, body-shaped diversity doesn't show up in X-Comics in a self-conscious positive way until the last about five years with Leah Williams and Vita Ayala and other writers of the great age that I suppose has just passed of the Krakoan era. But it is, it's popping out at me in a way that it doesn't, for example, in the Dark Phoenix saga, because there is so many people in this one issue who are in street clothes, doing everyday things, and every single one of them is Hollywood model hot, including the teenagers who look like teenagers, thank you, Paul Smith, who are <laughs> amazing, and I just want to hang out with them, but who are also all lead in a teen romance movie, gorgeous, and if you're drawing a comic with four people, that's okay. If you're drawing a comic with this large a cast of people who aren't all fighting, I just wish there were a little bit more body diversity. And yeah, I'm saying this not because I like this comic any less. This is one of the <laughs> great comics of the world of mainstream comics ever. I'm saying it because it's 2024 and I want the comics of 2024 to do better than the comics of 1983 were allowed to do. And I've got my eyes on that wonderful panel of Scott and Lee looking like the, the literally being on the beach in a sunset in a <laughs> romance movie. It is a, a symptom time. of, of Paul Smith's style, you know, and I, I think this is an interesting jumping in point for one of probably the most impactful pages of this particular comic. Um, yes. That centers around Nightcrawler and Amanda Sefton. And yeah. I would be remiss uh, to my one and only Dr. Anna Papard if I did not spend a couple minutes talking about this panel um, in which Kurt surprises Amanda uh, in the... <laughs> the burp says burp, but Amanda sees Kurt and Amanda and says, says yum. <laughs> yum. Yeah. So the, the reference to the Burt Reynolds uh, naked photo with the magazine over his uh, his privates as Nightcrawler with a Banff doll in front of it. Wait, has Anna written about the Burt Reynolds photo reference? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's written about I, this I, extensively. She's written about um, Sexy Nightcrawler beautifully in several different occasions. Of I course. I the Burt Reynolds thing there. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the fact that there is a chilling bottle of champagne you know, sort of phallically pointed in Amanda's direction, po posed right in front of the couch. Um, yes. It is just... Oh my God, that that <laughs> bottle is pointing in the same direction that Nightcrawler's bits would be if we could see them. Exactly. And it is just, you know, a remarkable, just very quick summation of what this character had become from the time that you know, the letter calls had started to have female fans. Uh, and I don't know if male fans didn't write in or, but that's who got published and saying that, you know, Hey, this, this character is adorable. This character is cute. And yes. people going, wait a minute, isn't this the ugly like demon guy who like Kitty's afraid of to now 
sex symbol, right? Yes. So yes. total transformation. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, he's offering Amanda a glass of champagne with his tail. Mm. Oh, implications there too. It's it's not it's not that who Nightcrawler is has changed and the old concept of who he is has been thrown away. No. Um it is that as the fans see him as sexy and as he himself comes to feel accepted, he is able to be the sexy, confident, blue fuzzy leading man that was always in his nature to be able to be. There is a line, not just from you know Kitty being afraid of him when they first meet, but from that wonderful panel in Uncanny 130 where he's looking out the window of a car and tells the reader and tells Chuck that he is done using his image enhancer oh, and he's yeah. going to be blue. Mm-hmm. He knows he's hot, but he had to learn it. And a lot of us need to learn that. He's such a role model. <laughs> That's so another, cute. what a great classic X-Men backup story too, with uh, Wolverine daring Nightcrawler to uh, walk down the street without it. I, I, that's one of my favorites. And then at the end of this issue, um, we get, mm-hmm. as you mentioned before, the first appearance of Maddie Pryor. And Scott is just like, what is going on? He has had the rug pulled out from under him. And it is just an amazing moment in comics. Yeah. History. But can we go do one more kitty moment before we go there? Of course. Because the, the initiating situation of this issue in which she really wants to persuade Chuck to let her back on the X-Men mm-hmm. gets resolved very appropriately with Chuck, who at this point must know that Wolverine is on Kitty's side. Yes remembers or becomes convinced that Kitty has already had all this combat training and survived in space and saved her teammates and says uh, first that uh, this, this wonderful moment where Kitty explains that she wants to keep Lockheed as her sort of sentient pet. And Chuck says, eminently logical Kitty. If I say no, will he eat me? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's established that Lockheed can absolutely understand human language, even Mm -hmm. though he doesn't use it. And then Chuck says, and I don't know where this comes back. uh, We established that Chuck cannot read Lockheed's mind. Right. The only way Lockheed can communicate is just through vibes with Kitty. And Chuck says, and this is, Chuck making a good choice, you know, mark your calendar, take a drink. <laughs> I suggest compromise. You may join the X-Men on probationary status, provided that does not interfere with your education or training. If it does back to the new mutants, you go without protest or argument. Is that acceptable? And Kitty says with Lockheed on her shoulder, you bet it is. And that is the right answer given what Kitty has already done, even though, if we were starting from scratch, she would belong on the exact same team as Ilyana and Sam. Yeah. And then we go to Alaska. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a, one of those rare moments where professor X actually like sees the logic of a situation, which is, uh, which is nice. Um, yeah. Did you have any, any takes on this issue also features Kitty's costume corner, um, which features <laughs> fan art of some different costume ideas for, uh, for Kitty Pride slash Ariel slash Sprite. So 
What I wanted to know after seeing Kitty's Costume Corner, which I love, uh, it's got it's got three different fan designs, all of which have close similarities to costumes that Kitty has worn or will wear. That is true. Yes. The, At least in color scheme, for sure. The, yeah. The, the blue and white uh, kind of fairy boots, uh, big gloves, triangle mask costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has a disturbing similarity to the Israeli flag. I'm not sure whether that was intentional. Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. This is a time when American and perhaps Filipino, since these people are writing from the Philippines, uh, American popular senses of what Israel-Palestine means are very different from what they are now. And there is a new mutant story about that, that I will happily come back and talk about if you haven't placed it, but that is really different and far grimmer than this kitty centered episode of Battle of the Atom. That's a costume that's going to resemble a little bit the iconic Alan Davis costume she's going to wear a few years later. Yeah. There's a green and white asymmetrical leotard based costume that resembles the yellow and green, sorry, not green and white, yellow and green leotard based asymmetrical costume that resembles the yellow and green costume she will wear for about one issue of uncanny, but will also (laughs) wear in God loves man kills. Right. And then there is a goofy as heck multicolored costume with a V neck that resembles both the old uniforms of the Vancouver Canucks hockey team and deep cut. Oh, there's, I can tell you why I am familiar with the, old Vancouver Canucks uniforms, if you want. Uh, It actually does have an X component in it. But uh, first, I will point out to Battle of the Atom listeners that that resembles one of the goofy costumes that she designs for herself during the Brood Saga. Yeah. So these are fun, thoughtful fan suggestions for costumes, two of which make sense and are in character, and one of which doesn't but weirdly prefigures her great Excalibur costume mm-hmm. and I am really curious whether exactly when God Loves Man Kills gets drawn because I want to know whether Brent Anderson saw this mm. yellow and green and it influenced him or doing the yellow and green thing what's the date on God Loves Man Kills uh hold on let's see I'm holding Operators are it's got to be after this, right? Uh, let's see. God loves man kills. I is... think it's really close. God loves man kills turns out to be very difficult to place in continuity because of who's on the team. Then Douglas Wolk has found the two panels of one comic from around this period when it can possibly take place. But Douglas had to work at it. And when Douglas has trouble placing something in Marvel continuity, you know, it's convoluted. Uh, Marvel graphic novel number five actually does come out in January of 1983. So it comes out before this issue because uh, this issue is okay. cover dated uh, April of 1990, 1983. So, okay. so we don't know. We don't know. I mean, it's it's still, you know, possibility that Brent saw these these fan drawings behind the yeah. scenes. But who knows? Maybe it's just a coincidence. I think it could be a coincidence. I hope it's a coincidence because if Brent had seen these, I would hope that he credited George Gozum of Metro <laughs> yeah. Manila, the Philippines. This also, Kitty's Costume Corner, it's just beautiful and it's fun. And it's exactly the kind of interactivity that comics had before the internet with devoted mm-hmm. fans. It's also really notable that two of these three designs come from the Philippines, mm-hmm. which is later starting, I think, with Will Sportaccio going to be a consistent source of 
Marvel artists. Yeah. But that hasn't started yet at this time. These are people who are growing up reading comics in in that part of the world. And that's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. It's great. All right. So let's see if we can rank this. We have other uh, issues from uh, from the ashes um, ranked extremely high. And I'm curious what from the ashes is the name given to the trade paperback that contains this, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, So I would I don't think. I'm curious how high you want to go with this because the, the highest from this era that we have is at number 10, which is 169 to 170, which is the Mm -hmm. classic storm Callisto fight. Now below that at 11 is 172 to 173, which is Wolverine's Mm -hmm. wedding. I don't know that this reaches the heights of both of those, but it's close that's right. Um, so we recently, the, the highest thing we ranked recently was the Jasper's warp at 15, which is just a, an amazing portfolio showcase of, uh, of Alan Davis's work. It's yeah. frankly incredible. Um, yeah. where, where does your mind lies? You, you're looking at like our, let's say our top 25, 30 here. So, cause I think this belongs so, up here. Do you agree? Yeah, it's, it's, oh yeah, it's absolutely top 50, maybe top 30. It is hard to this. We are really in the stratosphere where comparisons are almost meaningless. Sure. Um, I think it's not as good as slumber party. Okay. Um, which, which is, is at 20, 20 mm-hmm. uh, but I think 20 is too low for slumber party. So I don't know. Okay. Um, I think we're in kind of the right space there. Let's I, I want to put it below Slumber Party. Okay. It is a really, really perfect single issue. I the, agree. The only thing that's the only thing that's wrong with it is something that's wrong with the entire culture that we live in, which is about body diversity. That's the only thing I wish were different. Mm-hmm. And that's about the culture. It's not about this. It is such a model of how to do this, but it's also a lot of links in longer chains. I think it is, I think it is better than life death. Oh yeah, I would agree. Um, I think it might be, I think it's better than what if magic that great Leah Williams issue. You know, I, um, I I'm honestly, I, <laughs> I would be more than willing just to slot it right below slumber party. I think this is just like incredible comics that it just kind of defines what X-Men are to me. And I know that. Yeah. I'm actually okay with that. Yeah. I am. It's so apples and oranges to compare this to supernovas, but I, I think that's about the right place. I think it's belongs near the passion of Scott Summers from uncanny volume two. I think it belongs near the mutant massacre. I'm okay with I'm actually okay with having it be our new number 21. All right. Then that is where it is going to go. Uncanny 168. Professor Xavier is a jerk. Um, Steph, I, I really appreciated the, the suggestion that we go backwards because it did allow us to kind of build up to, to doing that, that complex analysis of the, of the issue. So I thought that was really great. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. I greatly appreciated you uh, co-hosting and um, I love doing this. Is, is there anything you want to tell people that you're up to uh, plug anything? If, if people want to find you um, what's going on, 
So uh, my publishers would hate it if I didn't tell you that I've got some books out. There nice. is a book of poems called We Are Mermaids, which is a little more than a year old. I'm, I think it's my most, I'm sure it's my most fun book. Uh, it's also the one that's the full length book that's got the most poems about the X-Men. Uh, there is a chat book, like a staple bound kind of zany thing available from Rain Taxi Editions called For All Mutants, which is a tribute to the Krakoan era and has even more X poems. And there's a book about poetry stuff called Don't Read Poetry, a book about how to read poems, mm. which honestly has a bunch of X-Men Easter eggs, but it's mostly about <laughs> how to read a bunch of poems and like a whole bunch of them and feel okay about liking the ones you don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's what I'm up to. I have not yet left Twitter. I am accommodatingly on Twitter. I am not quite Hyde Park on Instagram. And uh, you can continue to find my work along with Adams and a lot of our other friends on the Comics XF website. Thank you for having me. Let's do this again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So folks, you can always follow me on social, Adam Rec on Blue Sky and Instagram, Arthur Stacy on Twitter. Next week, Zach returns and we are talking about uh, Psylocke stories, particularly a few where she fights off Sabretooth. Steph, thank you again for being here. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, we survived the experience. (laughs) I did survive the experience. Did you say rate and review on your favorite platforms? It really helps. I never really, we never really say that, but sure. Rate and review on, on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, I guess, I I guess that helps, but, um, but everybody tunes it out. (laughs) Folks, this is so much fun. And, and remember that professor Xavier is in fact a jerk. He really is. He really is. Uh, we'll catch everybody next week and, uh, hope you, what do we usually say at the end? Uh, Survive the experience. We we're we're hope, we we're glad you survived the experience. I think is what we're we glad say. you survived the experience. Glad you survived the experience. I don't know. I don't even think that's right. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye. Get it.